Welcome to this week's episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. And I am Pastor Nathan Klutzmeyer. So we are going to be focusing on the Epistle lesson and the Gospel lesson for this coming fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. The overall theme is From the River to the Mountain. This week's specific theme is Absolute Authority. So with the Hebrews passage, we're going to see in this section how the writer to the Hebrews draws our attention to the authority of Moses that's foretold in the first reading from Deuteronomy chapter 18. You can hear that one in church on Sunday. And then the authority of Jesus demonstrated in the gospel lesson. You can also hear that one in church on Sunday, but we'll also talk about that one here. So the second reading from Hebrews chapter 3. The writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, focus your attention on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in God's whole house. In fact, Jesus is worthy of greater glory than Moses, in the same way that the builder of a house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, and God is the one who built everything. Moses was faithful as a servant within God's whole house by testifying to the things that would be spoken. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are his house if we hold on firmly to our confidence and the hope about which we boast until the end. So one of the things that I found interesting in looking at some of the commentaries on this text, Nathan, is that the writer says, Therefore, holy brothers... You know, so he's addressing this to those that you know, he's writing to. But what I didn't realize until I found it here in the commentary that we're already in, now we're in chapter 3 and that's the first time that he addresses those, his audience. So hmm. just, you know, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I don't know if that's necessarily the wisest thing for you and I to do when we're writing a, a letter to someone that we get like, two or three pages in, and then we write, hey, hey, dear Peter. <laughs> I mean, I think I've gotten some emails that are like that, but. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've gotten some emails. I have, and it's interesting, the emails that come, this can happen in seventh and eighth grade students or those who are 70 or 80 years old where they put the body of their email in the header. Have you received any emails like that? You mean that? like in the subject line? Yes, in the subject line. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've got some of that. Or I've gotten them with the uh, the address in the subject line. Like someone else, they were trying to send it to two people, and they sent it to me and then put the next <laughs> email address in the subject. Uh, yeah, and so in this text, you know, he talks about holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, who share in this vocation of being Christians. And he says, focus your attention on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Another thing I found interesting about this, and I, I thought it was correct on this, that this is the first and only time that Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the apostle. I don't know if you found anything interesting with that. No, I just, I know, I remember hearing that in this section of Hebrews, that Jesus is usually not referred to as an apostle, but again, if we think that he was the one who was sent to be the savior of the world, it kind of works. Um, but again, we usually think of Jesus being the one sending, not the one being sent. Yeah, but like you said, he is the one who has been sent on this mission to the earth to be its savior sent by God. Uh, but just for our listeners, it is something that is interesting and definitely unique that it's the only time in scripture that Jesus is called the apostle. We're much more familiar with him than the way that he is referred to next and high priest whom we confess. So he is that high priest that is the goal between the mediator, the intercessor between sinful people and a holy God. He is also then in his role as high priest making the sacrifice of himself as the Lamb of God to uh, atone for the sins of the world. Which is one of the major themes of the book of, of Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, and 
that's how we usually refer to him because we don't actually know with certainty who wrote Hebrews. Um, I think the two major ones that are usually held up is either Paul or uh, James, the brother of Jesus. Isn't it sometimes Apollos? I think Apollos is another one that's kind of up there. I think he would be the third that okay. one is kind of considered. But the whole point of the book seems to be explicitly drawing the connection between Jesus and the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as really as it's stated as an as the book that is written to people who were Hebrews, who were Jewish, to show them how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah, and if we have uh, pastors who are listening, if you want to reach out to me for a Lenten sermon series, I had created one, oh, that was a long time ago already, but it was on Hebrews, and it, I think it was called like Better Than, and it was just uh, that whole theme like we're talking about is Jesus is better than the angels, better than the high priest, better than the sacrifices. Here, he's getting to the point of he is better than Moses. So who is Moses and why is he so important that the writer is going to say Jesus is better than that guy? So Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. Um, He was the one who was the leader of the people of Israel as God brought them out of Egypt. Moses was the one who led them for the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And Moses really is kind of held up in Scripture as a unique character. Um, We see, you know, there's other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Elisha, and Elijah, but none really have the prominence of Moses. We have Moses who is... I believe he's the one who is the only one in Scripture who's called friend of God, Um, that Joseph had that very unique, very personal relationship of being able to speak directly to God. We think about how how he spent 40 days on Mount Sinai speaking, learning, studying with God, and he is really held up as the paramount person of the Old Testament and who many Jewish people— viewed as really the father of their faith. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, Moses was just preparing the way for Christ. Christ is far greater than Moses. And then you add to it, too, that especially in this era, uh, with the dominance of the Pharisees in Jewish daily life, people viewed the law of Moses as the guiding principle of their lives. That's where many Jewish people found their identity in the law of Moses. And the author to the, he- the writer to the Hebrews is saying, no, you should find your identity in Christ who has now fulfilled that law. So while you were talking, I looked up the exact theme for that Lenten series, and it's a better Savior. Uh, and what the writer goes on to say is, Uh, Moses was faithful in God's whole house. In fact, Jesus is worthy of greater glory than Moses in the same way that the builder of a house has more honor than the house. And he's there saying that the architect, the builder of a house, and it might be a grand and glorious house. Well, you have to not just praise the house. You got to praise the guy that designed the house, the guy that uh, then built the house, knew how to put everything together, And Moses is just a part of that house, the spiritual house of God that you and I as Christians are part of. Jesus is the architect of that house. And then uh, it's interesting to read this fourth verse in context because if you and I are teaching an adult confirmation class on creation versus evolution and the, the work of God the Father... Oftentimes we are using this verse for creation. For every house is built by someone and God is the, the one who built everything. And when I use that for adult catechism classes, I'll often show examples of the Milky Way and explain how you know, God created all of those things in the universe. And yet then I'll also show, you know, little examples of an atom, a nucleus and an atom, all the way down to something that's tiny. And God made those things, the building blocks. And explain, just like you see a house, you have to know that someone built that house. It just doesn't happen. 
And if that's the way it is for a house, then that's the way it is for all of creation. I really like using, I've used it a couple times now when teaching um, catechism age students. It would work for adults too. Um, but I have a video clip of a Ruth Goldberg machine um, and saying, okay, how many times would you have to throw all of these components up into the air before they landed in this precise arrangement? Well, again, that's with creation on a far greater scale. But we're getting a little off topic with this discussion here. Well, but I'm just saying that I know. That's, that's usually the way that I've used that verse. But in context, I mean, we're, we're proper in using it that way. But in context, uh, the writer is saying that uh, Moses is part of the house, just like you and I are. But Jesus is the builder of everything. And I think that's the point. It's... He's saying, you know, Moses isn't the one who came up with the law. Moses is the one who merely spoke what God had revealed to him, and Jesus, as God, is the one who built the house. Moses didn't build the house. Moses just showed people the house. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, he's part of the house. And the, the writer goes on to explain, uh, again, the differences in roles. Moses was faithful as a servant within God's whole house by testifying to the things that would be spoken. There he is a willing servant, but he is a servant nonetheless. And yet, in comparison, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And the son is always greater than the servant. And then he goes on to say, we are his house if we hold on firmly to our confidence and the hope about which we boast until the end. So if we, like Moses, are confident, or another translation would be, if we are courageous and then we can boast in the end. Not a sinful boasting because when you're boasting about Christ, his works, his ways, that's never sinful. And again, we didn't go through the Old Testament lesson, um, but Moses himself acknowledged this when he pointed the people that God would send another greater than him who would be the prophet, that, no, that Moses had no illusions about himself. Um, Moses realized he was a sinner, that he had disobeyed God as well, um, and so he also was looking to the Savior. All right. Anything else on that text? No. It's a tougher text. It is. It's what, yeah. yeah. It's probably one that be tougher to apply in a, in a Sunday sermon, especially when you have an exciting gospel lesson to preach on. I mean, it's, it's exciting when you've got Jesus driving out demons and so forth. And I would say, too, in general, Hebrews is a more challenging book in the New Testament. There's just a lot packed in there. Yeah, there's a lot packed in there. And like we talked about in a recent podcast, you know, it's difficult to unpack everything because when you're going to explain, you know, Jesus greater than Moses, well, you've got to go back and you have to explain who Moses is and then explain who Jesus is. Why is it important in, in that time frame to the audience that the writer is speaking to because he's writing to Jewish Christians? How does that apply to us today as Gentile Christians? And just having to explain you can throw out Jesus is the great high priest. Well, then, too, you've got to go in and explain often what the high priesthood is and what was all involved with it and how, too, Jesus is a different high priest because he was not part of the Levitical priesthood because he was born from the tribe of Judah. And like we said in the recent podcast, this is difficult to get into in a uh, sermon that's less than 20 minutes. So maybe what we need to do is go back to the Hour, 45 minutes to hour-long sermons. Then you can explain all of this in detail. So, uh, And if you, if you really want to do that, uh, send emails to Nathan <laughs> and let him know. That's, that's really going to cut into my time getting back down here from the Caledonia that's campus. Right. That's right. Uh, because, again, the way we do it on Sunday is, like I preached last Sunday, because someone was gone to a wrestling tournament, and it wasn't me. And uh, so I, I finished preaching at the Racine campus, did the creed, took my gown off, went up to Caledonia, got there at 9.15 for the 9.30 service, put my gown on, preached, greeted the people, got down here again at about 
11 o'clock because we start now at 1045, got in the pulpit uh, and, and preached again. So uh, go ahead, Nathan, if you want to read the gospel lesson and we'll have more to say on this, especially since Nathan's going to be preaching on this text. Uh, so the gospel this week is Mark 1, 21 through 28. They went into Capernaum. On the next Sabbath day, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who has authority and not as the experts in the law. Just then there was a man with an unclean spirit in their synagogue. It cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked the spirit, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. The unclean spirit threw the man into convulsions, and after crying out with a loud voice, it came out of him. Everyone was so amazed that they began to discuss with each other. They said, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly through the, all the region of Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples are up in Capernaum. So Capernaum is going to be in the north, in Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee. And it seems that there's going to be a number of his disciples like Peter and Andrew, James and John that live in Capernaum. I was going to say, I think it's right after this we find out that Peter has, well, we find out two things. One, we find out Peter is married because we hear about Jesus healing his mother-in-law. And then two, that Peter seems to have a house there in Capernaum. Yeah, and so maybe we can remind each other, we can talk about that house that is uh, in Capernaum, that when you go on a tour of Jerusalem, of the Holy Land of Israel, uh, that you can see what they, they believe is the house of Peter. But we'll talk about that next week. So they went into Capernaum on the next Sabbath day, so Saturday, their day of worship, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So the synagogue is their local church. And here what's interesting is that each synagogue did not have their own assigned rabbi. So you would have traveling rabbis like Jesus kind of showing up. Uh, and they're maybe thinking in our church body's history, we had the the rise of Prideigers, right? The the riding preachers, you know, back then riding the horse. Today, maybe me on my bicycle. My home congregation is one of the churches that was founded uh, to be served by one of them. So you want to explain what that what that is and why like that? So early on, uh, we didn't have enough pastors to send out to every town. And so there would usually be a regional pastor who would ride uh, from church to church, not always on a Sunday, but I think they tried to do it on Sundays um, a lot. Um, and so often churches were founded within riding distance uh, so that one pastor could serve those congregations. Uh, if you want to know more, my classmate Jacob Recker wrote his senior thesis last year on the, I'm going to say it wrong, the Prideggers. Uh So that would be available on the seminary essay file if you were interested in more history. And then I know, uh, I believe one of my other classmates, Nathan Biebert, is working with John Dolan on a in-depth history of the central part of the state and how many of the churches were founded. Yeah, I just remember that from uh, the one book that came out when our church body was celebrating its 150th anniversary. They talked in one of the chapters about the, the writing preachers. Uh, and we might think of this today, too, uh, because we have so many vacancies uh, in the pastors, uh, in the pulpits with our churches. I was talking to a pastor yesterday, Pastor Lang, who's at Hope in Louisville. So how he is filling the vacancy at my previous congregation in faith in Radcliffe, Kentucky, right next to Fort Knox. And so we were talking about it of how what he does now uh, is an hour drive between Louisville and Radcliffe. And so he'll do three services in person at Hope in Louisville. And then a third or one Sunday a month, he'll go down and be in person at Faith in Radcliffe. So what he does when he's not at one of the churches, either the home church or the vacancy he's serving, he'll record himself Saturday night, and then they'll show the sermon 
on the big screen TV in either sanctuary. And then they have probably an elder that's leading the service. And I told Pastor Lang yesterday, I said, it's interesting how you guys are doing the same thing 25 plus years later than when I first came to be the first pastor at Faith in Radcliffe. Because what they were doing in Radcliffe uh, before they called a pastor from the seminary was they would call up Hope in Louisville from Faith in Radcliffe on the phone, and then they would play the service on through the phone line that was connected to the speakers in the front of the church. And you just follow along. It was like listening to the radio except in a storefront church. And it happened to be that the Wells Connection video had come out on this unique way of doing this at Faith in Radcliffe a month or two before call day. And so when I got assigned to Faith in Radcliffe, my, my classmates had seen that Wells Connection video and they lovingly said, oh, Michael, you're going to replace the phones. <laughs> and, and so it's interesting that they were doing exactly the same thing you know, with the Riser Prydigers 175 years ago, but with newer technology, with the phone lines and the speakers 25 years ago, and now using newer technology with just videos and flat screen TVs. And some have suggested this as a solution, and I think it works as a temporary solution, but you're not able to do effective personal ministry. I know I had a member that I visited uh, my vicar year, and we'd often talk about when she was in the hospital on talking to some of her Catholic friends who were shocked and amazed that her Lutheran pastor would come not only visit her at her house, but visit her while she was in the hospital uh, because she said the Catholic priests in Milwaukee no longer did that uh, because there was one priest serving five parishes. Mm. And so all he would do, all he had time for, was leading Mass. There was no opportunity to do other ministry, and that's one of the downsides of that model. Yes, you can provide the gospel, you can provide the sacraments to people, but there's not always opportunity for those one-on-one um, ministry because there simply isn't time for someone who's traveling that much to be able to do those things. Yeah, and I thought Pastor Lang, uh, he made an interesting comment because the district president had asked him when he asked to do the vacancy, well, you could come down to Radcliffe every Sunday in the afternoon. And Pastor Lang said he didn't want to, didn't want to do that because he said, People aren't going to come. He goes, I wouldn't want to come in the afternoon. People are just conditioned, and rightly so, to go to church on Sunday morning, not Sunday afternoon. Sometimes you have to do that. When I was filling the vacancy in Lexington, Kentucky, which was like an hour and a half away from Radcliffe, and I did that once a month, uh, driving out there, and I didn't get there until you know probably later in the afternoon, 2.30 or something like that, and we would meet in a bank one time. We met in someone's home, uh, all different kinds of places. But it was a small group. And when you have a small group of 10 or 12, you can do that. But you're not going to get all of their your members. And very rarely are you going to get a lot of visitors in the afternoon like that. But just cover it that way or discussing it that way to demonstrate how Jesus was going around as that traveling preacher. And we might be called to do that at times too. And then Mark writes in verse 22, they being the worshipers in the synagogue were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he was teaching them as one who has authority and not as the experts in the law. So that's where we get that theme of Jesus having authority. And then with that too is why these two why this gospel lesson is connected with the Old Testament and epistle lessons is that Jesus shows his authority uh, here in this lesson, the authority that was mentioned in the first lesson from Deuteronomy about someone who would come to be like Moses, and then we see in the epistle lesson we just read, someone who is greater than Moses. So that's how all the readings tie in together. And I think some of the background here, where they're amazed that he's teaching with authority, um, I'm not so much sure about this time. I know later rabbinic Judaism, 
the scribes a lot of times would talk about the scriptures and then they would quote, well, Rabbi so-and-so interprets it this way and Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says this. So they would be citing other rabbis' opinions on scripture where Jesus is coming in and saying, this is what God's word says because he is speaking as the word of God. Yeah, and and that's where you tied into John chapter 1. Like you said, he is the word of God. He is the word made flesh. So yeah, he's going to speak a little bit authoritatively because he is the word in the flesh and he is the one who then is speaking that word. And it's interesting too that Mark does not tell us here exactly what Jesus was preaching that they were so amazed by. We can assume safely that it's something similar to what Mark records a few verses earlier where Jesus is preaching, the time has now come, all things are fulfilled, repent and believe the gospel. And just then, Mark writes, there's a man with an unclean spirit in their synagogue. So a demon-possessed man goes to church. There's a good good sermon theme for you. A demon-possessed man goes, or maybe a joke. I was say, that sounds like the start of a joke. Yeah, a demon-possessed man once walked into a church. uh, And they cried out, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, and isn't it interesting? I just noticed it now, the plural. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? So is the demon saying we because it's a single demon and it's him and this demon-possessed man? Or is he saying we because he's many? Because we see that elsewhere with a man that was possessed with a legion of demons inside of him. Yeah, it says we there, and then it switches back to the singular, I know who you are. Yeah. So there is some interesting... Yeah, he says, have you come to destroy us, plural? You don't have any anything definitive. You got any got any former rabbis that you can quote other college professors, some professors? No. Okay. And then, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he's right on. He knows who Jesus is. Jesus rebukes the Spirit, saying, Be quiet. Come out of him. If he's telling the truth, Nathan, why does Jesus want to rebuke him? So what I read on this is that Jesus does not want a demon telling people who he is because later on we'll see in Jesus's ministry that some of his enemies will say that he is a servant of Beelzebub that's why he's driving out demons to Satan never does anything for the advantage of believers and so this seems to be an attack to undermine the authority of Jesus by having this demon that usually speak lies speak a truth about Jesus so that others would not believe this about him. And then, too, we see early on in the Gospels that Jesus does not want his divinity necessarily at this time being spread because then we see later on in the Gospels how Jesus is struggling so much to do ministry because so many of the crowds have surrounded him wanting him to do miracles. And so that that's kind of, if I remember, that's one of the reoccurring themes in Mark where Jesus doesn't want word about what he's doing to spread too quickly, which seems counterintuitive to us. But then when we see what the result is, um, if you think, for example, with the paralytic man getting lowered through the roof, that people simply could not get near Jesus because the crowds were getting so large. Yeah, and if Jesus is telling people whom he's just healed, don't tell others about me, he tells his disciples don't tell others about me, and they know the truth, he's certainly not going to have someone who is demon-possessed telling about him either. I know this was a discussion you and I had the other day, is, so why would a demon-possessed man go to church? Well, when I was reading this, it really struck me as kind of, what was this demon thinking? Because he, it sounds like he wasn't. This person wasn't sitting in the synagogue. This was a decision to go in and confront Jesus. Did the demon think that somehow it was able to to win? And maybe that seems absurd to us. But remember, this would have been a being that thought they could challenge and overthrow God. Um, and so, again, 
maybe this was viewed as its opportunity to try to attack Jesus again. I don't know. I the where I kind of came down on it is sin is not rational. Rebellion against God and his authority is not rational. And so trying to come up with an illogical reason why the demon would do this may be an exercise in futility because there is no logical. This is this is pure rage and anger lashing out at God. Now your sermon is already written, right? It is already written. Okay, so I'm going to see if I can give you anything really smart to and then you go, oh, I got to add that to my sermon. Okay, but you'll probably be listening. No, I'm not going to use any of that. <laughs> All right, so a couple of things that I thought of is that Jesus is being challenged by Satan. That notice that we don't really hear a lot about possession in the Old Testament. And we hear about witchcraft and sorcerers and so forth. So they were definitely using demonic arts. We don't necessarily hear about the possession of people. Maybe not among the Israelites. I'm assuming probably with some of the pagan religions there would be, but that's not in Scripture. Right. And then we hear about uh, a lot of demon possession in Jesus' time. We hear a lot about demon possession in Acts, so like where Jesus and Silas drive a demon out of a servant girl, and then they get thrown in prison for it. So you have that, and so that's one of the reasons is it seems like now the Son of Man is on earth. Jesus, the Son of God, Satan's going to go up against him. He's going to challenge him, and and maybe not face-to-face like he did in the desert, but I think if he's going to try and keep Jesus busy with all of this stuff over here so he can't do his real ministry of preaching. So that might be one thing. Another one I was thinking of is Satan is stupid. Okay? He's been around since the beginning of time, since God created him along with all of the other angels. And so in that way, he is wise because he he sees people. He knows the way we act and react. But And cunning. Yeah, and cunning. And yet, the reason I say he's stupid is because he's all emotion. And I think of that because the last couple of podcasts that I've done with Pastor Hagen on my, my book is we've talking about wisdom and the gift of reason and so forth. Satan doesn't have that gift of reason of uh, it, because he's this raw emotion. Like you said, he's anger. And when you're, you're going to be filled with emotion and anger, rational thought leaves. And so you're just reacting well, and it's one of those things. You, you th- I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us much about his fall, but you think of a being that God spoke into existence. Now thinks that they are going to be able to challenge the one who created them? Like, again, this kind of gets to the stupidity. Or you think about, too, when you're talking about the, the pure, the rage and emotion, that Satan somehow believed that by having the Jewish leaders crucify Christ, this somehow would serve to his advantage, and instead it destroyed him completely. Yeah. Yeah, and when you're talking about challenging someone, I remember, oh, 20, it had to be like 30 years ago when I was at the seminary, I was coaching a soccer team. So these are like 12-year-old boys. They were really good. They were a club team, and they were just winning all the time, and they thought they were hot stuff. And I was in good shape at the seminary and still playing soccer with pickup games and so forth. And I said, you guys think you're so hot? Well, take me on as a coach. And, you know, I could still whoop them then. And, but they think that, you know, in this example, they're kind of the creation of the coaches, but they couldn't really beat the coaches. They thought they were, they could. And the the head coach, well, he, he was a lot older than I was. I'm going to guess he could have, crushed him even more because he was a Greek guy that I think had played for the national team in Greece. So they could probably have 12 kids trying to, 12, 12 year olds trying to get the ball from him. And they couldn't, they couldn't touch it. That's just how good he is. Now think of that, that way with the devil and the, the creator of the angels, Christ. And then it's interesting too. You see, you know, some of the other stories of 
the demons challenging Christ. Um, they seem to go into it with the attitude that we're equals. This is an equal fight. And then it never is. Jesus just with, you're done. You know, come out of him. Be gone. It's never, it's never even an effort on Jesus's part because he has that absolute authority. Yeah. Uh, I've been reading a couple of novels, different, uh, different characters, uh, and these, these characters, they are the height of military efficiency, and they're going in up against innumerable odds, and they're just laying them all out in, in brutal and unique ways, uh, and yet that's the way Jesus is. You know, it seems like he is outmanned when you've got a guy in front of him that has, you know, a legion, maybe, a, a, you know, a thousand, angel, a thousand demons inside of him, kind of outnumbered, except he just drives them out, and that's what he does here. And very simply, but very powerfully, with authority, be quiet, come out of him. And there, just, we were going to touch on a little bit, just demon possession, and you know, for you as listeners to know, it is very real. There are going to be those that challenge you to say, the people didn't know about demon possession. They just knew that people were sick. They had an illness in the mind. Their mind had broken, and they just assigned it to being demon-possessed. And that's the way people are today. They're saying they're just schizophrenic or whatever, multiple voices and so forth, and yet we have to understand, no, demon possession is very real. I don't know if you've ever come across, I, I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole when I was at working at the hotel the last couple of years and there was nothing going on. And I remember watching one where it was an arrest video of a woman and I watched it and granted it's YouTube, but I watched it thinking, I think that woman's possessed because she was a very petite woman who was very docile, and all of a sudden something just switched as the officers were re- were arresting her, and she threw a very large officer off of her. And her whole demeanor and voice just changed. And I remember watching it and going, "That's that's evil there." And so it made me it made me think, like, is this person possessed? Right, and. <sighs> To understand that maybe we in the Wisconsin Synod as pastors don't deal with a whole lot of demon possession, although it just popped up this last week on the Wells Pastors closed Facebook page, and I just glanced at it, but the pastors were talking about demon possession, and they were asking questions of each other and so forth, but a couple of them had said, yeah, I have experience with this, so personal first-hand experience of dealing with someone who is possessed. And they were talking about the difference between oppression and possession. So an oppression that the devil is just, and his demons are just pushing down on someone, but not actually inside of them. And as opposed to possession, because the pastors are wondering, well, could someone, are, are people really possessed? Some people possessed, or are they oppressed? And these were pastors saying, no, we have experienced people where, they are, they have, they're speaking in languages they don't know. There is a, there's a different voice that's coming out. They have knowledge that they should not know. And I think you and I talked about this a little bit earlier this week. And I think one of the things that even we as pastors struggle with, you and I were both classically trained in Western education principles that value science, mm-hmm. evidence, reason. That That's our training. And I think sometimes that clouds, even those of us who, who understand we, we are serving in a spiritual realm, that there are these very real spiritual forces out there. And I think it's one of the downfalls of our very logical scientific culture is that even, even we who should know better sometimes discount the very real spiritual forces that are around us. Yeah, and you had mentioned about uh, the demon possession that would be taking place in other other nations and so forth. Yeah, I, I've heard um, from some of our missionaries talking as they're training our brothers in the ministry in Africa that for them this is this is a very normal occurrence that they they are dealing with with a demon possession. And it does seem we talked about 
Satan being stupid and I said cunning, he does seem to know how to attack different cultures in different ways, to find the weak spots in those cultures. And I think in American culture, he doesn't have to be so open with demon possession because he has he has so many other things that he attacks people in our society with that have just opened the door to allow him to have influence in their lives, that he doesn't have to be so overt in his attack because he can be more subtle in his attacks and get the same results. Yeah, and you know, I want to take my wife uh, sometime this fall for our 30th wedding anniversary. We talked about going down to New Orleans, and I like to go down there to be able to listen to the blues and jazz music, eat some jambalaya and gumbo, go on an airboat ride out to visit the Gators. But I joked with her about, well, you can go see you know, some of the black magic, uh, the voodoo, and so forth. She has no interest in doing that. And I really don't either because I don't want to be messing around with that stuff. And it is one of those things. I have not personally and God willing, won't have to deal with some of those things ever. But when you talk to guys who have had to deal with it directly, you know, I was talking about we, we sometimes don't think of it always as real. It The reality smacks you in the face, and you realize this is out there. Satan's powerful, but again, that's where it's not like, you know, the movies. It's not the priest or the pastor battling with the demon. As Luther said, one little word can fell him. That's, we use the authority of Christ. Yeah. And just a a warning, too. Uh, I teach people this, again, in my youth and adult confirmation classes when we study different world religions. I say, if you really want to know a synopsis of the world religions, just watch Disney cartoon movies. Because you'll see in these movies, like Pocahontas would be Native Americans, or Mulan, the the Chinese religion. Uh, If you watch Hercules, you have the Greeks and Romans. But when you watch The Princess and the Frog, there is that voodoo. And notice how they make uh, the voodoo guy, uh, he's cool. Be, you know, he's got a great song and so forth, a deep voice. Uh, so warn them, warn them of that. And then I just read an article last week that Netflix has a new cartoon show out where they make the devil into the hero. And then he is, uh, is supposed to be like the devil's daughter is a teenager, and she's like the the anti-hero, but she's the good guy in this movie, in this TV show. And these are things that if you as parents aren't paying attention to, your kids are just watching it on their own, you know, your 8, 9, 10, your your young high schoolers, uh, when they're watching this, they're getting infiltrated by the devil. Like you said, Nathan, he doesn't have to come out right in front and possess demons and possess people with demons necessarily because he can infiltrate people this way. I I didn't watch, or I I heard what you had, I know what you're talking about. I had read an article describing it too. Um, And it seems, I don't remember all the details, but again, it seems to be this premise. And I think you saw this premise too in like the show Lucifer, Mm -hmm. that the devil is the one who's all about freedom and personal choice and growing and learning. And God is this intransient, locked, rigid, everything has to be his way. Um, There's no way for freedom. There's no place for joy. There's no place for happiness because he's a tyrant that rules with an iron fist where the devil is the one who is enlightened. And if you want to have fun, you you follow him. And again, I kind of play with that in my sermon that, you know, that's what our old man wants. We rebel against God's authority. We want to do the things that we think are good for us. But then we realize, like so often, the sins that we commit that God talks about, they damage our relationships. They damage our bodies. Sin isn't good for us. Satan lies to us and tries to convince us. Again, it's the first lie he said, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God and your eyes will be open. This will be good for you. And instead, it made everything horrible. Uh, I'm sorry. I, 
I besmirched the good name of Netflix. It's actually Amazon Prime. There's enough other filth on Netflix you can get out of that one too. But this is what uh, it says about the show. He, being Satan, was a dreamer with fantastical ideas for all of creation, but he was perceived as a troublemaker by the elders of heaven. So they're making God out to be the bad guy. Uh, And then, uh, so then, uh, this is what Prime Video has in their X, their tweet. Heaven and hell, like you've never seen them before. Here is the opening scene of hashtag HasBeenHotel, premiering Friday on Prime Video. And I like with this guy who shared that, and then he made the comment, and this is what we're talking about here. Satan is crawling out of the darkness and openly promenading in the light only to be embraced by a people who once feared God. Choose this day whom you will serve. And then he quotes Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. I was going to mention here, I think if you've been reading the news over this last Christmas, we've seen quite a bit with you know, the satanic, it's a, is it the satanic temple? Mm-hmm. or the, Yeah, because there's two different groups. But the satanic temple always says, well, we don't actually believe that Satan is real. We just believe that people should pursue whatever makes them happy. It's all about, it's a worship of self, which again, plays right into what Satan wants. I mean, that's what Satan wants. He wants us, it's emotion. It's focusing on yourself. What makes me happy in the moment and what do I care if it hurts others as long as I'm happy and pursuing my wants and desires? Yep. And then uh, Mark writes, The unclean spirit threw the man into convulsions, and after crying out with a loud voice, it came out of him. Everyone was so amazed that they began to discuss this with each other. They said, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So again, there is that... Uh, that theme again, that Jesus has authority. They they noticed it when he was preaching, and now they notice it when he drives this demon out. Well, this made me think, and I, I didn't get into it in my sermon again because you're limited, <laughs> but, if, but if I was doing a Bible study on this, I would point to, it made me think of, I think it's Acts 19, with the seven sons of Sceva, who are going around and saying, hey, if we use this name Jesus, this gives us this this power. And so they're going around challenging demons. And the one demon says, well, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know who you are. And then the demon beats them because those seven sons, the warning there is Jesus's name isn't some magical formula. Um, And what the people here see is that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God incarnate. And because of that, he has authority over demons. Yeah. When you're talking about a specific formula, again, that's what you watch in the movies that, you know, I used to like when I was a teenager, liking those scary movies with the demon possession, like The Exorcist and things like that. But not The Exorcist 2, which is one of the most boring movies I've ever sat through. But if you watch any of those kind of movies and... or that what they're trying to do is, you know, the priest has to have the cross, the holy water. He has to have, in some movies, you have to have a second partner. That way they can kill one of the priests off. But A young priest and an old priest. Yes. You, of course, being the old priest. I, I, get, I get knocked off first? Yep. Okay. Uh, but I'm faster than you are. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but demons are pretty fast. But then... Uh, that's always based on make sure you're using the the proper Latin rites and so forth. No, it's not based on that. I don't have any experience of driving out demons. But again, I have listened to podcasts. I've read books. One book, if you're interested in this topic, is Wizards at Peep by Professor Siegbert Becker. And that's a scary book. He talks, he delves into all this stuff very deeply that that we're talking about. I also know that he said... I think he says it in, in the book, but it could be elsewhere too, that he didn't want to write a sequel to that book because he had been looking at this darkness for so long. He never wanted to go back into that. So Wizards That Peep is a scary book, especially if you're in college 
and you decided with your roommates to watch The Exorcist, and then you're like, oh, you know what would be a good idea is to read real accounts of this, and then you stay up all night reading Wizards That Peep. And then come into the room like you're walking upside down. Like oh, that, that was another time. That was fun. Yeah, I, I freaked out my roommates because we watched The Exorcist, and then I crawled into their room upside down, which yeah, they did not like. Yeah, there's a scene, very famous scene, where this possessed girl is on the ceiling, you know, and she's crawling up the walls on the ceiling. She's walking, you know, backwards and so forth. Not just backwards, but you know, her, both her hands and her feet are on the ground with her stomach in the air. It's yeah, it's pretty pretty freaky. You didn't turn your head all the way around and projectile vomit or anything, did you? Not that time, no. <laughs> no, what I was going to say though is, you know, we're kind of joking about this, but the movies Hollywood always want to portray that it's it's a battle between light and darkness. And light and darkness are are equal and opposite forces that there's there's a struggle going on between God and Satan. But that's not how it is. Satan has been defeated. There he never had a chance to fight against God. And so what he does is he rages against us because, yes, there is a spiritual struggle for our souls, but he has no chance fighting against God. They're not equal and opposite forces. If it's Satan versus God, it's not even a battle because God has already won. And then that's the key takeaway for you as listeners is because you have Christ on your side, Satan, as scary as he is, and there's going to be times where he's going to be oppressing you. There's going to be times when you're going to feel like your house is haunted. And I'm not saying that's not a real thing. It can be that way. There's a lot of scary stuff that the devil can do, uh, he and his demons. And yet, you just yell at him. Uh, Get behind me, Satan. I am baptized into Christ. Like you quoted that verse from... A mighty fortress is our God. One little word, that little word of Jesus will fell him. Not the word Jesus, but that you're saying it with faith. That's the thing that's missing in those movies too. It's all about uh, saying the right words. But in a lot of times these movies, these TV shows, they, they have pastors and priests, people that don't really believe. They're just going through the motions with the right words. No, this is talk. What we're talking about is if you have absolute faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that He has authority over your life, you know that He has authority over Satan and whatever He can do to you. And I think we both sometimes or often tell people too that Satan already has unbelievers, those aren't his targets. He's going after God's people because He wants to rob us of our salvation. So we're the ones that he attacks. Yeah. Anything else on this text? No. Okay. And I'm, I, I saw you weren't writing any notes down when I was talking, so you're not changing your sermon. That's okay. Uh, so this is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life in Racine in Caledonia. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.